episode of Short Box Summary. I'm your host, George. And today, we've got a brand new guest coming to Studio H to talk about comic books from the mid-2000s. We've got Trevor. Trevor Fernandez, is it Lenkovich? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All Good right, job, cool, man. Cool. Yes. Trevor, you're a comic book creator. We met through Twitter because you make cool shit. I supported your Kickstarter, and uh, I think I inadvertently guilted you into coming on my podcast because there is a monetary incentive for you to do so. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Uh, no, man, it was a pleasure. I mean, like we've gotten on enough of those spaces where I was like, "This is you're definitely a guy I wanted to talk comics with." Uh, and then, like when when Richard it was like, "Hey, you should talk about this story," since we just did Hush, I was like. Oh, that's a great idea because it's it's like very formative in my comic book read my early comic book reading days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think after rereading, I was like, oh my God, this is still this is in the way that I write. Like this this story is baked into how I approach writing comics. And I never noticed that up until now. Very cool. Glad to hear it. So this book we're talking about today is called Batman Broken City. It was written by Brian Azzarello. Pencils and Inks by Eduardo Russo. Um, sorry, Eduardo Russo. Uh, colored by Patricia Mulvihill and lettered by Clem Robbins. It takes place from Batman 620 to Batman 625. But before we jump into that, the first issue comes out. Looks like uh, October 22nd, 2003. Who were you? Where were you? What was up in October 2003? Um, I was six. I was six years old. Um, I was what? I mean, that would have been first grade. Right. I was going to Catholic school, mm-hmm. um, definitely going to Catholic school at the time. And um, I probably had a bowl cut. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like like six. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not 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 uh, I'm not sure I have much more information beyond that. <laughs> I was I was 13 at this point. I was living in South America with uh, with my mom. She's from uh from a country down there and so i was living with her going to an international school so this was actually like when i wasn't reading comics that i used to always like randomly grab them but this is back when i was like checking ign every week like reading all their comic book reviews uh richard george was the editor at the time or might have been hillary goldstein and richard george was just like a senior writer mm-hmm. hugely hugely informative to young me and my comic book seeking stuff and I remember hearing about the story and seeing the art, thinking like, whoa, that looks weird as hell. Can't wait to read that when I get home. And like two years later, I eventually grabbed the trade paperback and I have not read the story since. So wow. it was very fun rereading this. Thank you so much for suggesting the story. And it makes sense because, as you said, we recorded a two part episode with with Richard and we talked about Batman Hush, which was like an incredibly important comic uh, for when it was coming out. But... Don't really talk about what happens after Hush, and this is the story that happens immediately after Hush. Uh, big picture, man. What what do you think of the story? You said it was uh, extremely influential. You want to talk well, about why? Yeah, well, I mean, like, before that, I was also going to say it's really interesting because it's sandwiched in between two major eras for Batman. You had Hush Batman, and immediately after came the Judd Winnick Under the Hood run. Mm-hmm. when they brought back Jason Todd. And so I think that this story largely gets forgotten because of that, um, which is unfortunate because I think it's great. I, I actually think this this is like in the conversation for like one of my favorite Batman stories of all time. Um, not oh, because wow. it does anything big, but because it it is so indicative of like my, my taste. Um, thinking about it now, just the way that 
Uh, Azarello sets a constant tone and an atmosphere for this book, which I think is really important to Batman and to Gotham City as a whole. Um, and he very much you we talk about those writers that make Gotham City feel like its own character. And I think Azarello is 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 exemplary of that um, and the way he talks about just like anything that happens at any given moment of the city being like the byproduct of something that resonates deep from the heart, you know, of, of mm -hmm. Gotham. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I adore this story. I think that it's got a lot of really interesting misdirection. Um, and, and it's, it's honestly, I think it's a lot of what's great about, um, Azarello and a hundred bullets, but just, I, I think more polished, right? Like you get into the early hundred bullet stuff and he's, he's, he's good, but his, like his dialogue is kind of can get a little cringy at times. And, um, that's very much not the problem here. And Riso, man, the way that he plays with shadows and spaces or like, um, flat color blocking mm -hmm. or, you know, the way he's leaving that open for, uh, Patricia, the colorist is insane. Like it just gives this story um like it, it gives everything about the story like i said it contributes to that sense of atmosphere uh which which i love and i i felt like his voice for batman was very authentic it, it was just like this pained tortured human being who's just like kind of like reaching around in the dark trying to do the right thing um and i i think while that's that makes batman a, a little bit more vulnerable I think it's it's interesting and I think it makes him more easily relatable given what we know about that character, not even just as like hardcore comics fans, but as like this figure of pop in, in our pop culture. Um, so, yeah. And it also like I love that we got to play with a couple of like C-list Batman villains because they never get enough love. That's true. That's true. Um, last week, my my father crashed over at my place. And uh, we watched a movie called The Big Sleep, which is like a Humphrey Bogart, Lauren McCall, uh, like noir detective movie from late 30s, early or mid 40s, whenever it came out. Um, I bring that up just because like this felt less like a Batman story and more like a Raymond Chandler story. And Ch mm -hmm. Raymond Chandler, big noir writer back in back in those days of like early Hollywood and uh, adapted the screenplay for the movie. But like, man, you could like cover up Batman. Like if you just replace Batman with someone in a suit and you replace, I guess, Killer Croc doesn't even like he, he there's nothing Croc about him in this story. Right. Except for like his viciousness and Scarface makes an appearance. If you just like cover up the ventriloquism dummy, like it's so easy to make this just like a hard boiled noir story. And it mm -hmm. just has like a little tinge of like the superhero and the extraordinary and all that shit sort of peppered in but I like to let everyone in on my process I'll read the story first like I'll read an issue and then I'll go back and take notes and I do that so I hopefully pare down and don't overwrite these scripts and, and just like the summary and I just focus on like what's really important and man this story so much of it is it's probably like 60% vibes and mm -hmm. like 40% I'm going to be a little negative here. 40% kind of like a convoluted story. Like, I think it's a simple story, but like the way it's explained, the way it's unfolded is like especially messy. And I do think that's to good effect because that makes it seem like Batman's more of a detective, right? Because he's sort of trudging through the shit to get to the truth in a way yeah. that like other authors, especially this time, I mean, like coming off of Hush where it's just like a bit more simplistic of a, of a whodunit. Yeah. And I think part of why I like 
the fact that the plot is a little bit messy and constantly misdirecting you is that it plays to the way that he's characterized in Gotham City, right? As this thing that ultimately makes living and existing incredibly difficult. So like, and, and that's a constant through line. I, there's a part of me that thinks that it's very much intentional because there's this constant descriptor of Gotham, like the rain in Gotham effectively being God's piss, right? Mm. They're not, it's not God's tears. It's God pissing on Gotham City. And this idea that there are 8 million people living in Gotham and they might shrug shoulders, they might stab each other, but but ultimately like all oh, these people are just trying to stay alive and and that's so so persistent to such a degree that i think lends to this idea that like of course this crime is messy and hairy because it's gotham city like it's it seemingly it, it almost seems simple from its onset but nothing in gotham is simple it's mm -hmm. always going to be conv a little bit convoluted it's always going to be misdirective because like this is the place that god pisses on in order to show his shame um so i i, I do ultimately think while like, you know, there might you could probably raise some criticisms to the the writing of this plot. I I think it actually lends a lot to the atmosphere um, of the story and and the way we're playing with setting as a contributing factor. I think that's a great point, and like it it really sort of rings true, especially as you finish the series, because like in the first issue, the first couple pages, um, Batman has the crime like ninety percent solved, right? <laughs> like. Uh, comparing like the beginning to the ending, like he was off by like one or two details, but like there was no way for him to know any of these details and, until he got his his hands dirty. So it, it is just like, oh fuck, only in Gotham would a story be this complicated. Only in Gotham would a story that seems simple actually be pretty simple, but it's just you weren't expecting it to be as disastrous as it turned out to be, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's messy, it's interpersonal. Um, and I think like the whole way through, one of the things that I think makes this story so easy to keep reading is like for me at least is i love his voice for batman and the way he uses batman's internal monologue as as a way to shepherd you through the story because not only are you seeing gotham through batman's eyes by way of eduardo riso and the way that he's rendering the city um but also like batman's voice is is just like this very i don't want to say melodic because it almost makes it sound pretty but um it 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 definitely makes it easy for you to sort of saunter like wade your way through the dirt and disgust of the story and and of gotham um and that really stands out for me and i think the cool thing about the the, the sort of poetry in in azarello's internal monologue for batman is that he always comes back to these um these images that he's laying before you like the way he talks about um he the the way he uses rhythm like he'll set something up with like a, a a double mention and then he'll follow it up a couple pages later like there is like this interesting sort of poetry to the way that he's painting batman just through uh, painting batman and and the world that he lives in just through the text like there was one when there's one part um where he's in full, where, where he is uh sort of what's what I'm looking for um he's trying to shake cobblepot and there's a uh, an internal monologue where he's like describing how he sees Cobblepot. Oh, I took, don't worry. I took notes. I I just, I ended up like screenshotting that page and just putting it in my notes because it's fucking yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's like a moment where I'm like, man, I usually think that it's really sloppy when a comic book writer describe decides to over describe something that we're looking at because 
I, I think it's just like a complete unawareness of of the medium and and of the like economy. But the the thing that makes it work so well for Azarello is that it is, it's like, it's like an overload. That, uh, it's it's like a sensory overload, that like, really, um, like. It's almost like he's over delivering this description of this character as a means to set up tone. Like we can see that Oswald has like a messed up nose, but he he almost describes uh, Oswald so comparatively that you begin to think about this character in a different way. Like he talks about um, like Oswald's hand and like how deformed his hand is. And I forget the comparison that he used. It, he, he calls it like a claw or like... I don't remember what it was. Oh, but, don't worry. When we get to Batman six twenty two, I, I got the page, man. Don't worry about it. But but yeah, man. I I just thought that it was so great and so effective um, at at setting up a little bit more to the moment than it was like just someone being descriptive, you know, because of a lack of awareness of what they were doing. And I think like that it that internal monologue that he has sort of per- persisting throughout the story really carries me through in a big way um and and like engulfs me and maybe that's just like pretentious writer brain mm-hmm. but um it it really did stick with me and and that's in like a world where now i get really annoyed by um extensive internal monologues in comics uh i get really annoyed by that too in fact like the amount of times i'll like open a page in in hoopla or marvel limited or dc infinite whatever i'm reading I'll just like see all the text like a fucking wall. I'm just like, God damn it. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. I guess we're doing this. Let me get a sip of Gatorade first because I'm uh, going to have to stay hydrated for this. Uh, anyways, all right. <clears throat> so Batman 620 with a cover date of October 22nd, 2003. Ready to jump into it, Trevor? Yes, sir. All right. Batman confronts a physically reformed killer croc about a murdered woman named Elizabeth Lupo, the sister of a two-bit crook named Angel, and the remains of her body fit croc's M.O., but he seems clean. He's recently visited the dentist, doesn't have those those dangerous jaggies anymore. He's got a <laughs> clean smile. He tracks down Angel's girlfriend, Margot Farr, who, after failing to seduce Batman, inadvertently leads him uh, to Angel. A scuffle breaks out between Margot and another gangster, giving Margot time to warn Angel that Batman is there and after him. After the fight ends, Batman hears two gunshots nearby an exit of the building Angel is in, and he finds a young boy with two dead parents, a sight all too familiar for Batman. So I normally write pretty extensively like i'll do like six to eight paragraphs of like what i try to keep like you know two to three sentences for for these issues um testament to brian azarello like issues are simple it's the plot that gets kind of confusing and i tried to clean up some of that just to spare listeners a headache but man what a what a solid first issue do you feel however that the imagery of bruce's prime trauma the the death of his parents overused underused used just the right amount if you had to pick one um i think now it's overused um i i can't help but think that 20 years ago it was less so i think it really has been leaned on a lot in in like contemporary more contemporary more modern batman uh and i think this you know this is probably the earlier period of like what we're coming to know as our modern batman Mm. um but I, i think it was used well uh in this particular story um and in i think 
in future uh <laughs> future uses for for other creators it's uh typically makes rears its ugly head with diminishing returns i think yeah i feel like it kind of becomes a crutch just because it's one of those things where it's like hey we all know this is important to bruce it's like yeah we all fucking know so like why do you have to bring it up all the like why you always got to bring up old shit you know yeah uh but seeing it happen to someone else and Batman constantly talks about like uh, Batman is a promise, a promise that like no one will ever have to go through the same fucking horrendous shit that I went through. And then to just see it so plainly, so exactly the way it happened to him, like that yeah. was that was effective seeing it happen to someone else as opposed to him just reliving his own exact personal trauma. And I think that like the the implication at the end of this issue that he could have possibly have been the one to lead this this series of events into unfolding to where a child is is placed in the same situation he was is really interesting um and it this this what i like about their inclusion of this is that it it, it not only kind of in the mythology of the character like i think most people will do nowadays it's mostly just like a it feels more like a rehash like they're trying to establish something even though we all know it whereas here it actually becomes like an emotional um hurdle for batman to overcome as he's investigating this crime and, and becomes actually even more than a hurdle i think it's dichotomous in a way because it, it is both a hurdle for him but it is also like the major motivator for him to uh get to the end of this crime um and hopefully heal this wound for this child that was never healed for him mm -hmm. yeah the last thing batman wants to do is live in a world where there's reasons for more batman right yep all right, ready to jump into the next issue? Yes, sir. All right, Batman 621 with a cover date of November 26, 2003. The next day, Batman contacts Detective Crispus Allen to get more information on the case, heavily implying a connection between the two dead parents and the missing woman, Elizabeth. At a strip club, Croc is led into the champagne room and tied down by a dancer who's quickly dismissed by Batman. Uh, quick aside, the neon coloring in the strip club is fucking awesome. That is such like a beautiful sequence of pages. Yes, with a fresh lead, Batman breaks into a chop shop associated with Angel and finds one of his friends, a guy named Johnny Billy. After a quick scrap and slight interrogation, Batman is attacked and disoriented by parties unknown and takes himself to a local safe house where he dreams. Mm. Again, simple paragraph. Love you, Brian Azzarello. Thank you, man. You make my job so easy. And <laughs> yeah, like I obviously Eduardo Riso is an extreme talent. You mentioned 100 bullets which was vertigo book by brian azarello and eduardo riso but like i i have to shout out the colors specifically by patricia mulvihill here um whether you like the story or not i don't think there's any denying that this is a gorgeous book and i think a big part of that uh you mentioned uh riso and like the way he uses shadow and blacks uh for me it's like the contrast of those shadows and blacks with like the whites of eyes that's mm -hmm. like the thing that I find most haunting and the part that like jumps out from the page. Like they look like weird little stars that are just shining in the darkness. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely stunning. And that was, I mean, that it's, it's interesting to see the way he uses it um, in the story, because that was a major visual motif for him in hundred bullets, the way it is with eyes and mouths um, and how they're sort of framed inside of the darkness, you know, as like this very, almost like unapologetic or very true, um representation of who the character is on the inside you know or how they're feeling at the very least so uh i i agree and i think what's really great about the colors by um Mulva hill here are that like they are incredibly simple like you might get two to three tones in in the way she's setting up her gradients but this is like 
the perfect this is like a perfect way to explain like foundational coloring and how important that is and if like you get the foundations it doesn't need to be like incredibly complicated or complex like she's she's not layering a bunch of watercolors um she's using maybe maybe two to three tones in a gradient and they're they're just very smooth and rich and help to draw the eye in places that it needs to be drawn to which again plays off of her her creative relationship in this story with Eduardo Riso because he's laying down solid deep blacks there's very little gradation i mean even in reflections throughout this story it, it's almost like a little swatches of a paintbrush that lead out from like the main figure it's just bold um and despite feeling bold like i think bold sometimes can get and or sometimes like fall over the line of being like too cartoonish right but in this like but this story is dark and is grim and it is moody and this the artwork and the collaboration between um penciler inker and colorist end up becoming both bold and grim dark moody so on and so forth which i think is a really interesting uh product you know, to come from these these two sort of styles that might otherwise be considered the exact opposite um, uh, without one another. Yeah, I mean, like the colors, like you, you mentioned the gradient, but like I think what's successful about that is like they're relatively flat. So like it keeps it really simple. Right. We were complaining about like, you know, deep narration boxes. And like part of the reason that bothers me so much, one is like a, you're right, it shows like a lack of trust between a writer and an artist it's like let me explain this thing it's like all right but like i'm a professional fucking artist and i'm drawing this thing that's on your script so like let me do some of the lifting here too you know mm-hmm. but another issue is like dude you're covering up really pretty artwork with unnecessary words and a lot of the times coloring can be like a huge distraction i think it's probably become less of a distraction recently just because in, in the sort of corporate corporatization of comics uh it seems just like a smoother process but like that was not the case in the mid to or mid early 2000s certainly wasn't the case in the 90s and especially wasn't the case in the 80s mm-hmm. i think it kind of was in the 70s just because pencils were simpler so like there's only so much you could do but i mean that, that's a different argument for a different day but the fact that these colors are so simple and so vibrant and just really pop and it seems like eduardo risa like the because he's doing the pencils and inking he's kind of just like setting patricia up perfectly right like like i'm looking at this page with a penguin and there's no background drawn except there's like lines of of like glass panels and so like then the glass can be colored in and there's like cracks in the glass and so like there's city poking through but everything is just so simple and it uses very very basic geometric shapes to to lead your eyes like it's just everyone thinks that like oh like this is lazy because it's it's simple it's like no this is genius because it's simple like when you only know exactly what you need to draw to convey the story like that's not laziness that is in fact a level of professionalism that people aspire to. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a complete and total like mastery of the foundation to your craft. It's what makes uh, Darwin cook so great. It's what makes David Mazzucchelli so great Two two of like probably the most lauded comic book artists of all time Mm -hmm. um, are because they use different elements of, of shape and form uh, in order to convey motion, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, Like, what I what I really like about um, uh, Riso here in 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 general, but particularly in the story, is that he uses like these fully formed shapes, 
in order to develop three-dimensional space in this story. Uh, not only is it atmospheric, but that is how he's developing, you know, these figures that move around on the page and that exist um, and have, you know, I, I think that's kind of fascinating. And there's like, not that it's abstract in any way, but I, I think that it's a really interesting almost like analysis on how the human brain processes things, you know, how we see things in terms of relative shapes. And Eduardo Riso is very much like distilling that uh, and putting it right onto the page in that way uh, to, to, I think a very high level of success. Agreed. <sighs> well, let's see. Besides that though, plot wise, uh, this is where things get a bit more complicated. I'll admit I was really tired. And so, um, when Batman first meets Johnny Billy, he just says Johnny Billy. And I was like, wait, what the fuck? Like, is that this person's name? Is this like a code word? I was just very confused. Um, not my favorite name of a of a <laughs> random side character. Um, <laughs> but that's really picking nits. You know, like if that's all I've got to complain about with this issue, then is you know it's a pretty good issue. Yeah, I I mean, you know what's funny, man, is I, I feel like this particular issue we were talking about like the internal uh, monologue i feel like the internal monologue actually is a huge reason why i like this leg of the story so much um but like like it's it's because it like recontextualizes i know i'm going like off a little bit on on a a little bit of a tangent but i was just i was just kind of combing through the issue on my tablet and i like you open it up and what you visually see like if you were not to to look at the words or have words you might think okay like the sun is coming up in gotham we are safe and the way that azarello uses batman's internal monologue to totally recontextualize the sun coming through gotham i think is freaking incredible um because i think it it like i said it, it just contributes to that sense of atmosphere it contributes to that sense of the character psychology how he processes the world around him um like the way he talks about like the the sunlight stabbing its way between the towers of Gotham uh, and really all it did for Batman was cast firmer shadows and it like totally recontextualizes every other panel like the next panel you see is a completely black silhouette of a cop up against the bright sunlight and you're like oh my god like you think about the light coming down and providing some sense of warmth but you look at this harsh black silhouette and you're like there's something there's something being hidden by the sunlight almost something that's being reinforced from inside um that i think is is really cool and and lends into um more of what this what this story will continue to do in using the city as uh you know a, a back more than just a backdrop for the story well that and just like even that phrase like sunlight stabbing through the buildings i don't know if that's like a verbatim quote from the story or not but like wouldn't be surprised if it was, which just reinforces the <laughs> persistent violence of a place like Gotham. And so you think like, oh, only bad things happen at night. It's like, no, man, actually just bad shit happens here all the fucking time. Yeah. You know, like it's actually never, it's never a good time to be in Gotham. Yeah, dude. And then you just have the sequence of him like after, you know, he's like licking his wounds after, uh, after this whole thing. And he's like, he's working out. And the way that the that Azarello and Riso play with the sort of rhythm of him taking repetitions and the way he's making these mental repetitions, like trying to work his way through the case. Right. And like trying to like begin to understand the cruelty of of the crime of of one of the several crimes that take place throughout the course of this story. And then it leans into him like with the whole stake cutting 
routine um i thought was actually so old school detective noir um and and like i don't know ultimately is just like a fun moment of like here's a, a here's just like some tone poem in the middle of your story that you part know? was fucking ridiculous all right yeah I, I didn't mention that in my summary but like while batman is talking to to detective christmas allen who this is like mostly a Marvel podcast. Part of me really wants to like jump into DC shit just because I personally kind of need a break of these characters. But I, I that's besides the point. Christmas Allen becomes important for a few years after after this story. But anyways, like as they're talking, like there's just like noise happening in the background. And Detective Allen's like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, I'm cooking a steak. It helps me think. Like, yeah, it's just like, <laughs> like that seems at once perfectly batman and also like who the fuck is this person in this comic book because i don't think this is bruce wayne and also like batman is like working his way through the case while he's cooking and he's just like yeah it helps me focus helps me think all this shit and then it's just like the perfect metaphor which probably isn't perfect because it was so contrived but just like him cutting into the steak and like the steak being completely rare in a way that he hadn't intended And Batman just being like, oh, but there was something I didn't see. And it's just like, yeah, like, okay, like, I get it. Like, you're beating me over the head with this uh, fucking top strip steak. I, I, I get it. Man, I, I enjoyed it because it's oh, like, it was you... beautiful. It was so much fun to look at. It was so preposterous and ridiculous. I don't mean to, like, complain on, on that part. And, like, I know I sound negative about it, but it yeah. is also, like, it's the same thing with a lot of movies where it is just like, oh, fuck, this is hamming it up pretty bad but also like there's a kind of kayfabe to comics where it's so much more fun if you just like buy into it and so by accepting it i do think you really enjoy the moment but like just taking a a step back you're just like do we need like a three-page um conversation over the phone where batman's just like meticulously grilling and fucking up a steak (laughs) i kind of i mean i'm here for it (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know how much i needed that scene until i read it you know is there going to be in uh, in your next project? Is there going to be an extensive uh, culinary scene now? It might be, but I feel like it would be a, a little bit too, um, you know, uh, uh, low hanging fruit if I were to do it in my next book. So I'll wait five years. So it makes me look really smart. Well, just like, don't use don't use fruit in the fruit yeah. scene. You'll be fine. Because so, <laughs> wordplay, bitch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna. What I'm doing is I'm setting the scene for some like reader of mine to listen to this interview, and then five years later see it in a story. Like, oh my god, he <laughs> kept it in. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we're all going full circle. And then, uh, then that's when I was. That's when I win my Eisner. But that's not. Well, you're gonna have to because like they don't really do like DVD commentary tracks anymore. So like, comic book podcast is the place where you get like the extreme nuggets of uh, auteurs and and their craft. So. Yeah. This is gonna have to do. Yeah, and then and then when I'm like old and losing my mind, like Frank Miller is now, I'm just gonna like relentlessly have culinary like dissection scenes for all of my characters. Perfect. Yeah, and then you'll only sign the books that have uh, basically like an episode of Chopped in the middle. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. For That's sure. this. I think we're really working out the trajectory of my career on this podcast. I mean, it's I did... a, it's a shame this podcast is free because this is basically like a writer's workshop right now. <laughs> That's unfortunate. <laughs> I'll, I'll, monetize, I'll monetize soon and split that with you. Don't worry. Do it. Do it. Let's throw this bitch on Patreon. Batman 622 came out Christmas Eve. That is December 24th, 2003. So Batman fell asleep at the end of the last issue and begins dreaming. He relives the night of his parents' murder 
and wonders what he could have done to change the outcome. He visits the newly orphaned boy in the hospital who looks like he's in a vegetative state. Looking for more information, he goes to the person who knows the most about the underworld, the person whose business it is to know, that is the penguin. And this is the page I pulled out because you're right, the narration uh, that Batman has for Oswald Cobblepot is uh, pretty fun. So without further ado, my reader voice. Oswald Cobblepot was a study in contrast. He had beady little eyes, wet, milky, white, and a mouthful of teeth as yellow and brown as any 80-year-old newspaper. His nose larger than life, his chin still waiting to be born. What swelled out at the end of his shirt sleeves looked more like cow udders than hands and fingers, while his feet were almost dainty. To balance this mess all out, he had a waistline that belched. He never let anything go to waste. But he dressed nice, really nice. Oswald's physical shortcomings and sartorial splendor earned him the nickname Penguin, which he hated. So, of course, I'd made sure that it stuck. <laughs> you fucking just like, I hate this guy. Yeah, like, <laughs> Batman going full dick mode there. That was great. <laughs> I, I was all here for it, man. Batman was going full dick mode before Batman damned. And don't let anybody tell you any different. That's true. That's true. He was hanging brain for years. Before, <laughs> before he, and, uh, before he was caught on panel hanging. And come, come to find out, it was the same guy. Azarello legitimately came full circle. Makes perfect sense. Can't stop thinking about <laughs> Batman's literal penis or metaphorical penis. It's, 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 it's beautiful to see. He just couldn't help himself anymore. <sighs> I mean, if you got Batman's dick, why not? You know. True. He, True. Batman tosses Penguin around a bit and perp walks him through his own club, speaking vaguely to help Penguin save a little face in front of his peers. But that conversation is instructive and leads Batman back to Margot Farr. The two are quickly shot at by cronies belonging to a not very well-known rogue named Scarface, which gives Batman his next clue. He tracks him down and quickly tells him what he's about to do uh, for Batman now with a weaponized underworld. So he's... Sorry, that was unclear. That was bad bad writing uh he, he tells scarface what scarface is about to do on behalf of batman now that batman has weaponized the underworld Whew, we got through it sorry it's Good. late I, I assume the celtics lost trevor you're you're uh you're a celtics fan they're playing the fucking timberwolves tonight who are a train wreck and i just assume they lost because that's all the celtics ever do anymore is lose oh don't talk to me like that i don't i don't man I hope they didn't lose. Last I knew, they were pretty back and forth, but they were like up by one going into halftime. It's like, dude, it's the fucking Rudy Gobert led Timber. Timberwolves. Like, what the fuck are we doing here? Anyways, back to back to the story. Um, <laughs> man, this this issue is so cool. <laughs> did you did you see Matt Reeves the Batman? Oh yeah, I loved it. I loved it too. Do you feel any influence from this issue in that movie? Dude, I mean, atmospherically, absolutely. Um, and, and like, yeah, actually, and he, he, it's funny, even the freaking color palette, it feels very, now that you bring that up, I didn't even think about it, it feels very um, connected to what we got out of Gotham City uh, in the film. Um, that's a really interesting thing that I feel like I'm going to be chewing on for the rest of the night, <laughs> now that we're talking about it. Um which I wonder if it was because there were a couple stories that were like named in Matt Reeves' influence um, for the Batman. Obviously, a lot of Frank Miller stuff, mm. but also like he brought up Batman Ego, which I thought was interesting. Um, and I, I wonder, I mean, I feel like I would have remembered if he brought this story up because it would have felt so niche as like Batman Ego felt like a niche pick, uh, yeah. which I, I adored. But 
you know, you, you bring up a really good point um, because there is a lot of sort of atmospheric and tonal resonance between the film and, and this story. What feels what feels like a closer pull that like uh, the interaction with with Penguin and, and the Iceberg Lounge or whatever in Matt Reeves film or that scene in the Dark Knight where he just like goes and grabs Eric Roberts and then just drops him out of a fucking fire escape, which feels more informed by this story to you? Oh, God. Um, I mean, we got to find a mo- like ni- I would say neither and just like default toward any time we come remotely close to seeing Batman's dick. OK. <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah cool i like you're i don't think you're wrong so that's perfect <laughs> i try um uh, this is this is when the story like because no offense to killer croc i actually do like killer croc as a villain i don't particularly love him in this instance like in this story because i do think he's kind of molded a little bit to suit brian azarello's needs as opposed to brian azarello tweaking a story to fit established killer croc's needs and so like we talked about killer croc and in in hush with richard and a couple weeks ago and like that was a killer croc that was mutated and he was like cured by the end of it but like this doesn't really feel like killer croc this feels like a 70s or 40s gangster with like a weird fucking jacket and just like a skin condition you know Mm. uh but yeah i I like the idea that his body like after because didn't he get like um he, he had gotten like a dose of some drug that like made his mutation hyperactive oh he um, was full fucking gator mode yeah like he, he looked yeah. like the mascot for the goddamn yeah, college so yeah I, I don't know maybe after like he's like okay well but he's a you know an unstoppable monster maybe we should invest in uh helping this guy out you know maybe maybe they really did their job and he looked almost a uh, comparable human who knows mm-hmm. but like he just feels like slightly out of place, place but it feels very much like uh like a brian azarello like almost created character but like it has that weight of a familiar batman rug and then all of a sudden you get to penguin and like this is when it starts to feel like a batman story in particular i think um just because (laughs) i could very easily see like swapped out trauma for like the the previous parts of the story where i'm just trying to decide like how much of this is a batman story and how much of this is like a deleted scene almost from 100 bullets that you know you were able to sort of like carve and and mold into a batman story and i'm not saying i don't mean that like pejoratively i'm just saying like is this a story that didn't fit for another project that then just became a Batman story or was this I'm, I'm sure every writer has a Batman story I think feel like Richards mentioned that before in a, in a space that we've been in on Twitter um yeah. w- was this always Azarello's Batman story I don't know man I actually really feel like um Batman's mythology and backstory really plays into a lot of the stuff in the, the issue um obviously obviously there is like the the plot element of him like kind of re-experiencing his own trauma third party but um i don't know I, there's something about this that that really, really plays to i think the character's history uh in a way that i don't think would stick as much like it it really does i think capitalize on the iconography like maybe this would still be a decent story if you like reskinned it with different characters but something about knowing the age old like you know, Bruce Wayne goes to an alley with his parents. He walks out completely alone. Um, I, I think this really does kind of lean into that, and 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 in so much as like it doesn't need to. It it, it very much like the reason I think that it feels maybe on your red why it doesn't matter if it's Bruce Wayne or not is because he, he didn't Azarello didn't really lean into like 
being explicit about any of it you know what i mean like it, it was just like we he knows that a lot of the is going to be carried by the cultural understanding of batman and even more so like if you're reading a comic book you're pr probably a comic book fan and know batman a little bit more intimately mm -hmm. and so i think he's almost like he's giving you just enough for your brain and your understanding of the character do a lot of the work early on um and so for me i think that's part of why i i believe that this is like this could almost only be a batman story because it relies on that in in i think an effective way for me at least like even though this was the first time i read this story i was still very very new to comics um i hadn't read a lot and i remember this at the time also leaving a really major impact on me because at that point like even though i hadn't read that much like batman and been like a part of my life and and like um, had been such a, a firm part of american culture at that point to where i could draw a lot of those emotional conclusions for myself and so yeah i i don't know if i'm like talking myself into a circle now or if any of it makes sense because i'm no. now like <laughs> no no six I'm hours shy of caffeine i'm but, I'm, I'm, um, I'm following yeah. you i'm following you there, there's there's a part of me that feels like this could actually only be a batman story because it relies on the weight of his mythology I hear you. Also, please do me a favor. If you haven't yeah. seen it, go on HBO and watch a movie called The Big Sleep. The Big Sleep. I will. I will watch it. Cool. I, I'm a Humphrey, I like Humphrey Bogart, Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, so on and so forth. Yeah, no, it's super fun. But like this, just like I, I again, I don't mean to be like pejorative when I when I say like was this a Batman story all along or was this a different story that was like fit into the Batman mold? Because I do think this is an excellent Batman story. And the way we talked about Batman Hush being like the perfect first Batman story for someone who's never read a Batman comic to read because it is just a almost like Disneyland ride for children presentation of the entire Batman mythos. Like you just hop on like a little carousel and you just go through every part of Batman. You get surface level inner, um, God, what's the word? Uh, surface level, um, I can't remember the word service level introductions. That's the word I was struggling to think of. Sorry. Um, I had a long day at work uh, service level introductions to every corner of the Batman mythology. And then everything is like presented to be super complicated. And then it turns out it wasn't that complicated at all. It was just kind of silly. This story I feel like is the perfect Batman story to follow up with because as much as Batman hush was the introduction to the Batman mythos, this is like the introduction to the Batman heart right like the, like this story is supposed to be like the beating heart of like what makes batman a compelling character and i think it does a great job like it is very much a detective story it is very much vibes it is very very much about the world that he's in as opposed to just like the the characters that like you hang certain opinions on you know like the the fact that like bat uh gotham sorry is so influential of a character in the story and i hate saying that like oh really like new york city was the star of this romantic comic like i, I don't mean it like that but just the oppressiveness of the place that batman finds himself in and just like the um hopelessness that he finds himself mm -hmm. in at all times like i think that is yeah. extremely instructive into what is a good batman story and it is just in fucking spades in this book i agree man this i mean this this is so formative of a of a batman voice for me um that i i feel like kind of carried the weight the thematic weight and like the 
emotional weight of like the way Azarello wrote Batman here. And it, and it, I think it's kind of painted my view of Batman ever since. Like I know a lot of people, um, despite like acknowledging that Batman is, is more of a tragic character that like rubbed the wrong way. If he's a little bit too dark, a little bit too depressed. And I think there's something about this being, um, such a foundational part of my early Batman reading where I'm like, no, 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 no. Give me more, <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's he seems to enjoy being Batman here, right? Like even that line about like I made sure the name Penguin stuck, you know, like where he is like indulging in the positives of this role he's assumed for himself, and like every other Batman story is just like fuck, I don't want to be here, <laughs> like yeah. this sucks. I wish this shit never happened, and like he does go through that to some extent, but he is so happy that he has the opportunity to improve people's lives the way only he can. Yeah, and there's also the element that, um, like, I mean, if you pay attention visually to what he was doing um, early on when he first confronts uh, Waylon Killer Croc, he's smiling. He's he's there's a moment where he is in the shadows and you see his stark white eyes, his teeth. He smiles through the dark mm-hmm. after kind of inflicting a little bit of pain on Croc, and it's just, you know, it's 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 it speaks to the metaphor that you'd or I guess more the motif that uh, Riso uses throughout 100 bullets and in this story but also to this it speaks to your point as well that man uh you know there's a part of him that has to take a little bit of i don't know i don't know if it's joy or maybe catharsis in uh being batman being able to exact the justice that he never had for himself but for other people well put well put you ready to jump into the next issue yeah let's do it all right, it's a fucking trap. We're not jumping into the next issue. But Batman 623 came out January 20th, 2004. We're going to take a little time out and just talk about what was happening uh, at the turn of the new year in 2004. Uh, Trevor, do you like music? Have you ever heard? You've heard songs before, right? I've heard a song or two in my life, yeah. All right, kick ass. Let's jump into the top five songs from <laughs> Billboard Hot 100 for the weekend of uh, January 30th. 2004 song number one kind of a big one it was hey ya by outcast you know that one right you were six years old i'm sure this still made its way into your young ear holes yeah yeah it definitely did um <laughs> man yeah and it's funny because i was like going through outcast catalog like a week or two ago because everybody's like they're one of the greatest hip-hop do all time and it's just like oh oh boy are they really um but yeah th- this is the, but the the chorus to hey uh or the is like iconic i think it's stuck in anybody's head that was live listening to radio at the time great music video too incredible music video with Andre 3000 playing basically every role. Um, That was a big part of my eighth grade. I remember was just being fucking obsessed with that song. And another song of theirs I was obsessed with was uh, the way you move by outcast featuring sleepy Brown. Different vibes for this song, but still kind of a banger. What, what can you do? Turns out Outkast, they were pretty good at making music for a pretty long time. I don't, I don't know how to fix that. You know, it's just, just what happened. 
True, true. Although, I don't know, maybe, maybe not as prolific as people give them credit for. But oh, that's my a, God. Talk, See, you podcast. weren't there. You were fucking six. That's the problem. And so, like, the way was... you're talking about Outcast is the way, like, my parents are like, no, the Beatles were the greatest rock band of all time. And I'm like, fucking, were they? Were they really? Either that or I was too young to look at it through rose-colored glasses. But who's who's to say? Yeah. Um, breaking the uh, Billboard Hot 100. Uh, the Celtics won 104 to 102. In... Oh great! That's I'll, I'll take the, a W from a C-list team. Yeah, yeah. Um, Anthony Edwards scored twenty-eight points. God, I fucking love Anthony Edwards. I hate how good he is. Song number three: "You Don't Know My Name" by Alicia Keys. You made your feelings known about uh, Outcast. I mean, you can't have a negative thing to say about Alicia Keys, can you? No, I actually love Alicia Keys. Uh, I think she's wonderful. Yeah, that's that's the right answer. Song number four was "Slow Jams" by Twista, featuring Kanye West and Jamie Foxx. I actually have no opinions, positive or negative, of this song. I remember it playing when I was in the car a lot. I remember it playing on MTV, but I don't remember being like, I'm going to have the most amazing fucking Friday night because this song is playing on a, on a boombox somewhere. It's, it's definitely one of the songs that I rediscovered and grew to adore as an adult. I mean, I like that whole album pretty mm-hmm. much, you know, but um, yeah, man, that, that, I mean, I, and now we're getting into the territory of the, uh, I, I I like the old Kanye. I miss the old Kanye. Yeah, I hope so. I hope everyone has that opinion. Like, man, I miss I miss Kanye from twenty years ago. That guy was pretty fucking cool. I really hope that's everyone's general opinion of Kanye right now. Um, number five, Milkshake by Khalees. Having a bit of a resurgence because she was in a Super Bowl commercial for I can't even fucking remember what, but yeah, it's her and like the what does the fox say? So like that's how I think people were like, oh shit, Khalees, yeah, this song was fucking everywhere, man. This song was so big and so hot back in the day because it felt like you could yeah. listen. It felt like you were listening to a dirty song, but goddamn, was it just so upbeat and cheerful that you could just get away with it? Dude, sometimes it doesn't matter. It it doesn't matter what you're saying. It just matters how you clothe it. You know what I mean? It's like it's like uh, I feel like this song is the equivalent of like being being aptly passive aggressive. You're like nothing. There's nothing anybody can do about it because of the way that you packaged it. But you know, you probably just made of like made fun of the way somebody like breathes air. You know, something <laughs> like f- fundamental to to them existing. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's this, and then like a couple years earlier, that was that Third Eye Blind song, Semi Charmed Life, where it's just like, yeah, we really just want to see what we could get away with, which is why we wrote a song about meth, and uh, it shot up the charts and became like a really popular song. But if you listen to the words, it's just like, oh, oh shit, this really betrays like the the melody it sets to. And then Khalees like had such a fucking amazing beat, and it was just her talking talking about asses the entire time, and like you felt like you were pulling one over over your parents. It's pretty sweet. 
That's it for the Billboard Hot 100. You ready to jump into the box office? Yeah, let's do it. All right, weird box office, really young skewing box office, and you'll you'll understand what I mean when I get there. Number one, you got served. Remember that that dance I, high school movie? I have never heard of that movie a day in my life. Okay, it is. Um, I I don't really know what else is. It's a it's a teen dancing movie, not unlike Step Up, but um, I think uh, it's set I think it's set in Atlanta. Um, gotcha. Super fun. Like it was just like really good semi-musical, semi-dancing movie. Like it was just it was just fun. I don't really know any other way to describe it. Again, I haven't seen it since I was 13 and it like made its first run on HBO. Uh number two, the butterfly effect. Hmm. Okay. Do you know that one? I know of it. I never saw it though. It is uh Ashton Kutcher. Um Life doesn't really turn out the way he wants it to. He starts reading his old journals and he finds he can go back in time and influence events. But every time he goes back and does that to try to improve uh, his life and the life of his friends and the life of his family, he ends up fucking something else up. So he just constantly is going back and is caught in a loop of trying to improve, 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 improve upon things that are just going fucking horrendously wrong for him. Wow. Uh, The premise actually sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's pretty enjoyable. That was a big... uh, Big eighth and ninth grade movie for me, just because it it felt really smart at the time, especially yeah. as like a 13, 14 year old, just like, fuck, this is heavy. This is deep. This is fun. No idea how it holds up, though. But who, who uh, yeah, it's got Ashton Kutcher and Amy Smart. So who directed it? Could not tell you off the top of my head. Hmm. Uh, number three was Along Came Polly. That was a Jennifer Aniston Ben Stiller romantic comedy where she has like a pet ferret and he goes on his honeymoon and gets cheated on immediately by his new wife, who I think was Deborah Messing from Will and Grace. Um, and then he goes back and he hits up Polly, who's Jennifer Anson, was someone he had a crush on before, but like felt real like young 20s, maybe early 30s energy. So again, like what I want to say, this is like skewing young. This is like the oldest appearing movie on this list so far. Wow. I feel like I'm really doing this podcast a disservice by not having seen any of the movies. It's cool. Were. You're really fucking good at the comics part. And as a comics podcast, I really appreciate that. So you're you're doing great. Thanks, buddy. But I just I feel like a fucking old man. Like I know I'm older than you because I was 13 when you were six. I'm not like that much older than you, but I do feel like the fucking weird old guy at the bar. It's like, you don't know the butterfly effect. <laughs> Fuck you. Be- like I, I don't want to come off as that guy. Um to, to to be fair, I am like the youngest person in our social group too. So you know, true. I bet you everybody else feels that way to varying degrees. Yeah. Yeah, but Richard lives so much younger than the rest of us. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's very so I don't know how often he feels old. <laughs> it's the pants. It's the it's the young hot pants that he wears. Uh number four at the box office, the perfect score. Uh Chris Evans, Scarlett Johansson. Among others, they uh, are really worried about their future, afraid uh, that they'll get a bad score on the SATs. So they opt to break into the the office building where the answers are being held and uh, try to steal them to improve their futures. MTV produced film. Really important to me because of the soundtrack. I believe the credit song was uh, the Ataris which uh, was a very, very big band for 8th and ninth grade and 10th grade and 12th grade in college, George. Uh, movie number five, Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. Again, super young, like late teens, early 20s. Shitty movie about um, 
a guy who's in love with his best friend, this girl who enters a contest to win a date with a famous movie star named Tad Hamilton. I believe that was Josh Dumal was Tad Hamilton. Um, the guy who's in love with his friend was Topher Grace, and I cannot remember the name of the female lead. So I'm failing you as a podcast host. Dude, I mean, I, I haven't even I've I haven't even seen any of these movies, and I think I've only heard of one of them. So they're doing... they're all B movies, but I think I think this is like probably the most fascinating box office we've had yet because there's no like there's no fucking Academy Award winner in there, and like this is back when January used to mean something slightly different, and like it's weird because I think Return of the King was number six because it released earlier in like December, I believe maybe even earlier than that because like I know it had like a long box office run. But like this mm. was going to be the year where it just fucking cleaned house at the Oscars. I believe it won like 10 or 11 Oscars or at least was nominated for that many. So just Damn. to see all these like teen and early 20s, mid 20s influenced movies is just fucking surreal to me to see how hot and how popular they were. Um, I think that the, the killer, too, is like grown up. My mom, like my mom's Portuguese as shit. So she did not believe in like spending money to go to the movie theaters be like you'll see it when it comes on cable and like the logic really failed through because like we had 28 channels of cable mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so she's like see it when it's on cable aka you'll you'll never see it but i'm not going to pay for it anyways <laughs> like i think of all these i think i only saw along came polly in theaters i remember wanting to see it because this is back when like my homepage was set to apple.com slash trailers because the most important thing in the world to me was like movies and comics and this is back when I was still playing like Grand Theft Auto Vice City because I think that had only come out like a year before this series started. Um, Wait, yeah, so this like was... Apple, like the company responsible for like Macintosh computers at the time had like a news site? It wasn't even a news site. It was literally just aggregate trailers as they release. It was just movie posters that you'd click on and then would have it in various quality and then you could even download it and that was like huge. Like I remember downloading the two Taylor, uh, two towers trailer the year before just being like this is fucking awesome i can just watch this whenever i want it was like a minute and 40 and it took several hours to download on my 56k modem (laughs) damn man this is like a i feel like a a lesson on uh the 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 history of like what things were really like when i was a child son of a bitch now i am the old man of the bar (laughs) that didn't even mean i just walked backwards right into that that sucks but happy to be here. Happy to be the uh, second oldest person, you know. Uh, this is the year my dad stopped renting and actually <laughs> bought a house. And uh, he could only get, like, shitty cable in his old house. And as soon as he bought a house, he immediately upgraded to DirecTV. So I don't know. I, I might have seen Along Came Polly in theaters. But I definitely mm-hmm. fucking saw all of these movies as soon as they hit HBO and Cinemax and Showtime and all those channels. And I was like, I was 14, 15. Like, what the fuck else was I supposed to? Like, I live in Maine. You know, it's winter eight months a year. Like, what, what am I supposed to do? Damn. Wow. So this is this might have been like one of the most pivotal years of your life. Oh, this is when I started becoming me. Yeah, this is huge, hugely important. And this is also like uh, one of the first years I didn't live with older siblings. They had gone off to college. I'm younger by my brother by eight years, younger than my sister by seven years. And so it was not like looking to them to what was cool, but deciding for myself what was cool. And you know what, man? Comics were pretty fucking cool. And we're going to talk about Batman. Stop yelling at me. But before we get back to Batman, I got three more things to share with you. Earlier this month, the NASA rover Spirit successfully landed on Mars. That was really cool. That was a big deal. I remember Mm. thinking that was neat. Um, The weekend uh, that Batman 623 came out, 
It came out 128.04, January 28, 2004. That weekend, uh, the Patriots would beat the Panthers 32-29 to 29 in Super Bowl 38. And as we mentioned, no one would fucking remember that because that was a Super Bowl where, <laughs> where Justin Timberlake exposed Janet Jackson's breast and then introduced a time delay on all live events. Um, and then that weekend, Roger Federer, I'm a huge tennis fan, Roger Federer wins his second title ever at the Australian Open, beating Murat Safin in straight sets. So weird to think of a time when Roger Federer only had two titles to his name, but hey, turns out falls right in the calendar of Batman Broken City. Wow. <laughs> all right. That's all I got for pop culture at the time. You ready to jump back into, into Batman? Yeah, because apparently I am woefully underprepared for 2004 pop culture. <laughs> it's okay. It wasn't like a test. Like I wasn't like asking you like what you remember. You're you're good. You're good. <laughs> It's like it wasn't a test, but you failed miserably. You were fucking six, man. Cut yourself some slack. God. <laughs> Batman is already going 12 rounds with himself. Why do you insist on going 12 rounds with yourself? We already got that story. It's okay, man. I told you this story was very formative for me. Yeah, we, we both had a lot going on <laughs> this this January. Um, Batman 623, January 28, 2004. Batman's journey leads him to Japantown, where he meets the two new players he heard about from Penguin. These people are Fat Man and Little Boy, who are just as ridiculous and questionably tasteful as they sound. They talk in circles about the Elizabeth Lupo murder, and they reinforce what Batman has heard the whole time, that Angel loved Elizabeth Lupo and would never hurt her. From there, Batman surges through the underworld, trying to get all the information he can, weaponizing the criminals that he is fighting against to get more information. He bumps into Detective Crispus Allen, who informs Batman that Elizabeth Lupo was pregnant when she was murdered, which gives Batman his next clue. Uh, fun issue, Fat Man Little Boy. Do you know why those names are significant? No. So the two nuclear bombs that the U.S. dropped on Japan were named Fat Man and Little Boy. Oh, that makes sense. So that's why I'm like, I have question, questionable taste of uh, having them meet in Japantown, having meet these new characters who I assume are Japanese. But yeah, yeah. we got Fat Man, who is a very cartoonishly large man of impossible proportions. And then Little Boy, who's actually just like a a young woman who's like kind of strapped in, I don't want to say like straight jacket straps, but they look like straight jacket straps. I, I I can't attest to it, but like it looks like, man, this is like a custom job at a hot topic. Yeah, uh, but he like they're they're kind of cool characters to be honest. You know, like they're really chill. They they don't seem to overreact. They're going to come back in the story. Don't worry about that. But as for like first meeting Batman, they don't freak out, which I thought was really cool and like almost makes them more menacing for not doing like the very typical superhero thing where like they need someone to immediately start fighting. You know? Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I I thought I always thought that they were very sort of visually um they're just very memorable characters, like yeah. just by the way they, they're designed. And I remember thinking to myself, like for for a while, it's like how come we never saw them ever again? I don't think they I don't think they've reappeared once since this story. I don't have think they? So either. No, not 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 to my knowledge. Like, I mean like what which I hope nobody does, because when I write Batman, I'm going to write those characters. They're going to come back. I have, I'll be honest, I have every issue of Batman going from probably like issue 600 until New 52. And then I don't have any of New 52 because I fucking hated New 52 so much. We've talked about Scott Snyder before. We don't yeah. We don't have to get into it now. That'll be like a 
a special episode where we talk about whether or not he's good for Batman. Uh, but then, like, everything since, I, I could not remember a second appearance of either of these characters. I just don't think it ever happened. And, like, I've got all Detective mm-hmm. since then, too. So, like, I, I really don't know. Yeah, yeah. That that definitely motivates me to get on this before somebody listens to this podcast who's, like, closer up on the room pole than I am. Because I really want to bring these characters back. I'm open to it. They they seem really cool here. Um I mean, like Batman versus like Gotham's own Yakuza. I feel like that would be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. That'd you, be a lot of fun. You told me that you wanted to read Ed Brubaker Batman before this. Were you able to read a lot of that before uh, before Broken City? I read about half of it. I was able to get through half of it, and unfortunately, I think I, I read the worst half of it because like that that first that first bit is pretty clunky. Um, yeah. Well, the best pretty, half pretty of it good. is Gotham Central, right? That was Ed Brubaker. Yeah. Michael Lark and, and Greg Rucka. Yeah. 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 But you can, it's, it's really actually like not to turn it into a, an Ed Brubaker podcast, but it's really funny to look at like Ed Brubaker, like his first time on band being kind of mediocre. And I think he almost like sharpened his blade in order to go to daredevil, which usually seems to be the opposite. Like person will kind of make their bones doing daredevil and then eventually have the clout to go do Batman over, for DC. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting just to think about the sort of reverse order of that for, mm-hmm. for uh, Brew Baker's career, but uh, I digress. No, that's, that's an excellent point, but like we, we briefly mentioned Gotham Central. Gotham Central, I think we talked about on this podcast before, but it was basically just like a Batman universe book where Batman never appeared, and it was about like the night shift and the day shift of Gotham City Police Department, and I think Correct me if I'm wrong, to the best of my knowledge, if that's not where Crispus Allen was created, then that was definitely like the reason people knew him was because of that book. Uh, did Gotham did Gotham Central Oh, because it happened it happened after um after No Man's Land, right? Yeah. I feel like Crispus Allen was in No Man's Land. I could be wrong though. We're just gonna have to go back and read all of '90s Batman just to be safe and sure. Start. Let's fuck it. Let's just start it at nightfall. Work our way through Legacy and Contagion and <laughs> No Man's Land, and then we gotta go all the way up through. Because like you said, that like after this was the Judd Winnick era where we get like Under the Red Hood. You're wrong because it's actually War Games happens before we get there, and War. It's it's like a little three issue arc like takes place across all the Batman books, and man, let's just fucking read all the way up through there, and then we'll do uh, War Crimes as a nice little coda at the end of that. Wait a minute! Whoa, 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 whoa! I thought War Games happened right after No Man's Land. No, War Games happens right before the Under the Red Hood stuff. Wait a minute! No, because Under the Red Hood starts in like six. Like late 620s, I'm pretty sure. No, it starts in 637, uh, 3036, 30, I think was like Batman 636 was that issue that has like Black Mask holding the gun at the cover. And that was yeah, but like, it starts I, even even before that. The uh that issue that issue where uh Amazo the uh, the Amazo uh robot uh um where where Batman and Nightwing fight the Amazo robot, I'm pretty sure is like that was that was 635, I think. This is such a fucking nerdy podcast. I don't think we've ever done this before on, on Short Box Summary. Welcome to the party. I think that was Batman 635 with like a Mazo. And then there's this story that goes to 625. And then there's a Man Bat story that Judd Winnick starts writing. 
I think that's five issues. And then I think it's like a three issue tie in to, to war games that kicked off in Batman, the 10 cent adventure. And then it jumps oh, into under the red hood. Oh man. Oh, that's right. Judd Winnick does the scarecrow arc. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I got it. Mr. Cause I just saw, I was like, yeah, Judd Winnick took over like right after this and did something with the, uh, Dustin Nguyen, I'm pretty sure. Um, Man, it is. It's not often I get to flex my my nerdy bona fides on this podcast, but it's really fun yeah, just remembering yeah. Batman stories. <laughs> I'm uh, sorry, that was yeah. terrible podcasting. That was that was really bad. <laughs> it's okay, man. I'm here for you. No, I like thank um, you one for not being mad about me being a dick to a guest that you are on my podcast. But also, I just, I'm just apologizing to the listeners because that wasn't. I don't think that was an interesting podcast. I just vaguely remember Batman covers that came out 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, don't worry. We were only holding them hostage. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of hostage, I don't want to hold you any longer than I have to. You ready to jump into Batman 624? Yeah, man, I'm down. All right. Um, Batman dreams again. Uh, and honestly, the way this is presented it kind of feels like Batman's dreams are kind of a superpower the way his like sub and unconscious are like helping him work through the case. Do do you get that feeling where like he sleeps, but he doesn't really sleep. He's basically just like meditating or like doing like a fucking dice roll rest, like in Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like just doing hit dice. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like he's, he's so focused on the case as he goes to sleep that his subconscious mind kind of like does what it can to carry those thoughts forward, uh, which I really like. Like I, I think, those those moments very much could have been these really boring, like just look listening to the character talk to himself kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and the way that uh he uses Bruce's sleep uh to do that, one, but also to carry forward like this metaphor of how tortured Batman's dreams are because he doesn't have like parents to dream for him anymore, you know, mm-hmm. or to provide like uh that type of I don't know, like affection, I guess not necessarily affection, but you get the point uh, I think is, is really interesting. I think these dream sequences actually kill two birds, kill two birds with one stone. Well, that, and just the way that like daylight and daytime is no reprieve for Gotham. Like sleep is no reprieve for, for Bruce Wayne. He never gets to shut off mm. the person he is. And I agree. With yeah, you that no, this, that's a really good point. And I agree with you that this is such a more interesting way of having him work through the case than just like sitting in front of the fucking back computer. It's you know yeah. crunching advanced statistics on a sorry advanced analytics on on crime in gotham but anyway uh this leads him yeah, back to a confrontation yeah. with killer croc but the two don't get to fight long before margo far opens fire on the two batman disarms her and she tells him the truth angel didn't order the hit on his sister she did angel was an extremely controlling and protective brother and once elizabeth got pregnant margo had her off to protect her, uh to protect angel from the person she was involved with this leads Batman throughout the city until he comes across a trap set by Angel Lupo and springs it, leading ultimately to a confrontation with Fat Man and Little Boy. It's a hard-fought win for Batman, but he takes the two out just as Angel arrives, who then runs for his life. Um, I love, love, love that Fat Man and Little Boy are actual challenges for Batman, and it's not just like... Oh, like it's it's not like an interaction with Scarecrow where it's just like he's different, you know, like he's he's changed his game, which is just like what I feel like most writers kind of like lean on as a crush. That's like an excuse to bring in an old familiar character, an old favorite. 
but by having new yeah. characters like they're actually threatening in their own weird way and like batman wins but it's still like you don't know how he's gonna win because he's never fought these two before and so like i did think that was interesting i thought that was a great choice by azarello and i thought it was choreographed really clearly by uh riso which that's a big part for me uh with, with modern comics and is uh, modern comics and I, I guess comics at the time were like doing generally better than i feel like they are now like now i feel like they're too static but like just the fact that it's so clear what's happening it's so well choreographed by by riso really appreciated that yeah. about reading this book yeah yeah i totally agree and uh Mo- mova hill's colors are uh really really pushing that forward and it's interesting because the palette is is like you know she's using near i don't know if there's a term to describe colors that are nearly complementary but not quite exact complementary tones mm-hmm. but she's using like these blues and yellows as a way to like differentiate like action beats which i think to a lesser colorist could come off as like a little bit jarring but here it's just like no you're gonna have firm kick firm punch firm kick as you transition between these opposing colors and i i think it, it adds like i said that sense of rhythm and that sense of weight to all of the the physical contact well put well put um i think this is probably the part of the story that's like most confusing it's just i i had to go through it reread it but like just when you're reading it the first time trying to figure out like okay wait is this a trap set by fat man and and little boy or is this a trap set by angel or is this a trap set by neither by someone else who's like actually responsible like this is the part where i feel like it's most convoluted Mm -hmm. but if you were honestly to take away the dialogue i think it would be less confusing and like that that's not a knock against azarello but like there was some i think it was steve soderbergh who like had a screening of indiana jones and raiders of the lost ark and like made it black and white stripped away all the dialogue and played the uh the soundtrack to the social network to it and just like ask people mm. if the movie still made sense and like yeah it did still make sense mm. uh, like according to like an exit survey and i don't know like i just feel like this was so visually clear in a way where the plot got a little a little confusing i wasn't reading it in the best circumstances i was reading it like between meetings today when i needed like a, a break from work but uh this mm-hmm. is where i feel like it lost me just a little bit trevor you're well, the writer i here. feel like I, so I I got the I got the impression that um, basically Angel was trying to uh, poorly set a trap for Fat Man and Little Boy, and that they were sort of doing the same to Angel, and Batman happened happened to have kind of sprung the trap for Angel, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, like, you know, they were some like the Fat Boy um, or Fat Man and Little Boy were somewhat prepared for some form of adversity, and the fact that you know Bruce hadn't entirely deduced like what made them so capable you know or what made them so dangerous that like you know i feel like he kind of just walked in knowing that some something would rear its head that would lead him in the right direction not knowing exactly what it was at this stage in the game um but yeah i don't know i mean i i I wasn't all that confused by the moment um going into it but um yeah it, i could see where you're saying that though definitely it seems like a couple a couple threads are going in different places but i think it kind of leads leads ultimately or sorry it lends to like the way we're talking about how gotham complicates things you know you're like you have three 
different parties, actually four uh, that are trying to like <laughs> set traps on one another. And they all sort of spring each other's traps, but in the wrong sequence mm-hmm. in a way. And it just makes everything so much more muddy, uh, particularly for Batman, who who's who's the, you know, our, our POV character throughout the course of the story. Right. I'm so glad to hear you say that you're going to fucking love watching The Big Sleep then. I'm excited. Uh, <laughs> that's another one that I thought got like a little too complicated. And like not nearly like I, I don't I don't think this Batman story is nearly as complicated as, as something like The Big Sleep was. Again, like I was working, I was I was tired when I was watching that. So I, I don't mean to like completely dog on the creators and saying like they did like a, a bad product because I, I think that movie's excellent. Um mm-hmm. And like, I don't think that this is too complicated to not enjoy, but this is the part where like, I felt like I really had to like sit up in my seat when I was reading and be like, okay, wait, hold on a second and go back and actually do, do the math to, to figure out how everything lined up, how all those dominoes got, got to where they were so they could fall down perfectly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't know. Like I said, I, to me, it, it felt like I, part, and, and maybe it was a little bit more deliberate on Batman's part, wherein like, he knew that that Angel and, uh, you know, Fat Man and Little Boy uh, were trying to sort of set something up to double cross each other to where he was like, well, you know, the only way for me to avoid this completely is to set that trap off. So neither one of them, you know, are able to get the other because obviously, you know, the Batman's all about preservation of life, no killing, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So maybe it was like a, a self-sacrificial move. Um, although if that was the case, you know, that probably was not like the most organically developed and that could just be me, um, sort of looking to, to write that off in my own mind, you know, for sure. You ready to wrap this, uh, wrap this one up? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Batman six twenty five came out March 31st, 2004. While running away from Batman, however, Angel is gunned down himself by Scarface and his controller, Arnold. Uh, Time out from the summary. Let's talk about Scarface, because I feel like we mentioned him, but like didn't actually talk about it. So Scarface, Scarface is a puppet, a ventriloquist doll. He was worn on the arm of a man named Arnold, and Arnold has kind of a psychotic break in his life and uh, is a very sweet, timid person. But all of his violent tendencies and uh, lesser, more base instincts are sort of lived out through this puppet Scarface, who is, again, a doll, but like very much in the mold of like a 1920s gangster, has like a three-piece pinstripe suit, has a fedora, carries a Tommy gun with like the uh, the drum barrel. Um, really fucking weird character, really interesting character. And uh, I think becomes a lot more interesting because of what I'm about to say, where it turns out Arnold had a relationship with Elizabeth Lupo and was beyond excited for their new life together. He figured Angel was the one responsible for her death and Batman was honestly too fucked up from the situation to correct him and tell him otherwise. Scarface and Arnold are arrested and Detective Crispus tells, uh, sorry, Detective Crispus Allen tells Batman that someone at Arkham wants to talk to him, which leads Batman to the Joker who after infuriating Batman promises to point him to what he's really been looking for this whole time, the killer of those two parents that left a young boy an orphan. Batman figures it out, finds out that the young boy actually killed his own parents, that Angel Lupo had nothing to do with it. And then he relives a very painful memory of fighting with his parents uh, for their attention, for their affection. And then Batman, or sorry, uh, Bruce being responsible for them going to the movies that night. 
and leading to their death and just like the chance circumstance of, of going to the movies that night as opposed to a week earlier when they were supposed to go and when his father Thomas had to reschedule and that bitter f- note end is is the conclusion of Broken City uh, revisiting it Trevor because re- you said that this was a very informative story I assume it's one of your top five one of your Mount Rushmore's Batman stories um how does it feel coming back to it after the last time you read it? How do you feel about it after discussing it with uh with, with your new friend George? I I mean I I I love this story. Um and I really have come to appreciate uh, actually I think I appreciate uh Eduardo Rizzo and Patricia Mulvihill's contributions to the story even more now than I did back then. Mm-hmm. Um just because when I first read this story, my tastes were a little bit more aligned with like traditional DC house style artists. And now well, it's that not I, even that it's like I how make... stylized is this compared to Jim Lee, who did the story before, right. you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the direct contrast. Um yeah, and I I so I really begin to appreciate that more than I did before. But I think um again, like as as somebody who you know at the time I didn't have informed opinion. Like I, I actually really, really adore um, the internal monologue in this story, even though like there is a lot of it. I think that it really assists on several levels to what the story is trying to accomplish. Um, and, and, and I think this is just like a, a really great example of how you can do it if you want to, but like, ultimately this is not a skill that a lot of comic book writers have in their bag. So uh, um, I think it speaks to like one of, Azarello's strengths. I think that the ending, you know, um, because it, it, you could tell that he, Azarello is trying to tie a bow on, on like the emotional sort of downturn that he sets you on with like the series of events by being like, but it's okay because Batman's gonna keep fighting, you know, and and like that, that definitely felt a little bit. Um, like he was trying to relieve us of like the depression <laughs> that that he set upon uh, the readership and upon Batman. So I I don't think the ending in that way works quite as well um, as he would have hoped. But um, I, I yeah I mean like I thought that the the ending was pretty clever. You know, in that he's like Bruce Wayne feels like he killed his parents and this kid literally did kill his parents. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, I thought was an interesting little parallel. Um, but I I I'm still like I, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but this idea that when he hands the kid the gun, he's like pulling pulling it rela- pulling the trigger relentlessly, even though he knows the the chamber is empty. And it's just like it's it's like this weird hollow echo of Bruce thinking about like you know how how he how he basically pulled the trigger on his own parents i don't know it's something about it really sticks with me you know um mm-hmm. and i think particularly because like in 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 my work actually there i use like the sound of gunfire as this like um motif that that carries throughout my protagonist's sort of life and so it, it kind of reading this story now after having finished that that like the idea of like the child just kind of relentlessly pulling the trigger with nothing coming out and like just the sound of the click and it kind of takes on a little bit more of a meaning for me now than it did then mm-hmm. you know so i think it, it is particularly interesting coming back to this part this moment in the story um after having done that because now it to me it it has an entirely different not or maybe not different but like an even more weighty sort of impact 
No, that's a really interesting take on it. And do you feel, do you feel the ending? I don't want to say like, I don't want to ask like, do you feel like it was earned? But the fact that like all this like came back to Batman's failure one way or another, like, do you feel, I don't know, just because like, I do think it was cliche at the time, but I do think this is like also like one of the best executions of the cliche. <laughs> like um, mm. the previous story in, in, in Batman was, was Batman hush. And like, there's a character named Tommy Elliot who ostensibly is this little kid, right? Like Tommy Elliot tries to kill both of his parents uh, unsuccessfully kills his, uh, sorry, fails to kill his mother successfully kills his father. And so like editorial wise, like that's almost the same premise as like this little boy who just kills his two parents. Right steps on the toes mm -hmm. but i wasn't fucking mad about that one second just because i feel like this was so much better executed than than it was in hush and so like do you feel like this ending because i do think it is like one of the most like not one of the most but like one of the more profound endings in a comic and just like the way you talked about like the responsibility that bruce feels for killing his own parents juxtaposed against the fact that that child literally killed his own parents like do you feel like this stands up in in batman hi history as like one of one of the stronger endings so i feel like most stories fall apart with their endings yeah i mean I, I think comics. That, sorry i think that the the larger beat does i actually got a i get a little bit pulled out by like the last two pages where like he he kind of tries to as roller tries to almost force feed a little bit more of like an uplifting uh message for the end of the story mm -hmm. um I, that that's the part that gets me a little bit and it almost feels like i can never like register it in my data bank because the last thing in my head that sticks is the idea of the kid like open-eyed you know and and the sound of the um the the trigger clicking with nothing to follow it uh and particularly like because even the page after where it's just like you know the 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 rain stops in Gotham and Batman is just like really broken up about the whole thing. Like, I feel like that, that definitely ties a bow a lot cleaner around this story. Um, than like getting into that next, that next little, little bit of monologue where like Croc's throwing out another body and he's just like, yeah, for everybody's he's like, you know, he's like, everything's going to be okay. Cause I'm still fighting and there will be a day where I'll never have to do this again. And he's like, for, I hope for your sake that day is tomorrow. And it's like I, that that's the, the part that really doesn't stick with me. Um, and I almost feel like undermines the weight. You know, I almost feel like it would have been cooler if like you ended on that that next page. Well, um, if honestly, like if I was waiting for the next page to be the end like three or four different times. Like I was waiting, like felt like you're reaching like an emotional crescendo. And there's that one page right after he leaves the hospital where he's like, I'm thankful to find a broken gutter. So the water streams out of my face, covering up my tears. I was like, Oh fuck. Oh, sh Oh mm. shit. Like Batman's crying, like on the streets where he's supposed to be like the toughest person around. Like that's like really powerful shit. And then you're right to just yeah. have it like thematically end exactly the way it started where he's coming up on killer croc like after bad shit went down it's like oh so literally nothing changed nothing changed whatsoever where it, like quite literally exactly where we started yeah i i probably i would have liked this idea if um he could have somehow used the sound of batman's tears to like echo the sound of the click somehow some way or another mm -hmm. i think that would have been really really cool just to show that like the cruelty and the 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 evil and like the 
disparity in Gotham like continues to resonate. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's it's almost like you you think uh, to me that would have been really powerful if you kind of had him describe the sound of the rain because it's been raining pretty much the entire story. And then like he describes the sound of the rain as it lets up and it's just like the soft like sputter of the rain up against like the hard pavement. And if he could somehow find a way to tie that together to the sound of the empty clicking of the trigger being pulled and the fact that like Batman knows that this is never going to end in Gotham City, but he's going to keep fighting anyway. Mm -hmm. I think that would have been cooler. I feel like that would have been a little bit more resonant because like the way that it ends, it, it's like everything is going to be okay. And like this will all stop eventually. Whereas I I would have liked the idea that like this cycle is going to continue in Gotham uh, and the city would be all the worse for it if Batman weren't there to like, you know, to to sort of absorb some of that for people. You know what I mean? It's it's like I, I almost feel like he he let us off the hook a little bit too easily. Mm -hmm. And being like, oh, you know, we're right. Like Batman's going to win eventually. Like Batman will be all of crime. Whereas it's it's almost a little bit more of a triumph of Batman's soul against like the rot of Gotham City. If you if you're like, hey, like, you know, th there there it does not look like there's ever an end in sight, but it doesn't matter because Batman is going to keep fighting for that little boy. You know what I mean? Batman is going to keep fighting for that dream. The or it, it, Or honestly, if he had come up with this idea that like, you know, the the if he had tied up the the sort of idea that like the the tragedy of the story is that you know there were no there were no parents to dream with to dream for him right like the but but Batman is sort of dreaming for Gotham City like mm -hmm. Batman dreams of a Gotham City where it doesn't rain where God does not piss uh, upon eight million people I don't know I feel but but yeah I don't I'm talking myself into a circle now <laughs> that's that's interesting though because that is like the final act of heroism of, of Batman was to shoulder all that heaviness of the story for us one last time and like make us feel better but then I, I do think like I'm uh, visually betrayed by the story but like clearly setting up like just a brand new exact beginning <sighs> I think we talked enough about Broken City Trevor you just had a Kickstarter project wrap, right? Uh-huh. You, yeah. you want to talk about your project? Let people know what, what you're working on, what, what they can expect from you in the future? Oh, yeah. Um, so we, uh, I just wrapped the Kickstarter to the last issue of my first comic book series, uh, Area 51, The Helix Project. It is a sci-fi thriller um, that follows a half-extraterrestrial child um, as everything he knows is put into question by a mysterious figure who... Kind of, uh, it implies that the the de that the murder of his father was not so clean cut, uh, and it sends him sort of driven to uncover the circumstances surrounding the death and into the jaw of a massive Cold War genetics conspiracy, ultimately forcing him to face a twisted ghost from his past that challenges everything he knows about himself and what it means to be human. Um, so we we've just wrapped up that sixth Kickstarter, but uh, fear not, people of the internet. We will have those available, uh, that final issue available on our website as we do with the rest of the series. But, um, you know, now it's it's kind of onward and upward. My next project uh, that, I, that I've announced, at least, is uh, Minutes to Midnight, The Hour Between Life and Death, which is not inspired by the name of a Linkin Park album, I promise. Um, but uh, It'd be a lot cooler if it was, but I, I, I continue. Please continue. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. 
Sorry, but, uh, we're, we're getting into yeah, Prime so, High School, like this comic book podcast, Prime High School George. I'm like, I do remember that fucking album. I do remember that single. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're speaking my language. It's like, listen, oh, it's not inspired. Okay, you're speaking a language, not not my language. But sorry, please continue. No, it's a great it's a great album, but uh, nonetheless, it's totally unrelated. Um, but the project is going to be a uh, 72 page collection of comic book short stories, uh, like graphic short stories. Um by all of which are written by me, but drawn by uh, several creative teams, both familiar and um, you know new to uh, my creative work. So you're going to see in various forms myself with other members of the uh, Helix Project creative team working together again uh, in new and interesting ways. All of them are sort of very different from what you might be used to, but also uh, a lot of new talent. Like um, you know, we're working with uh, the absolutely brilliant Steph C. Um, who is a who is really well known for her watercolors. I'm working with another uh, talented artist named Ryan Best, and um, currently sort of courting somebody who is probably above my weight class uh, to to do uh, another one of the stories. But um, yeah, anyways, they're they're all going to be very different genre stories that sort of loosely play around this theme of perspective or lack thereof. Uh, I want to do a sort of collection every year that's thematically tied together by something that reminds me about a time of day uh, because the name of my company is pocket watch press so i was like what you know how fitting to kind of begin at midnight you know the the death of the old day the beginning of a new this idea of like shift and change um the, that sort of like late night clairvoyance uh or those moments where you're so insulated by your own thoughts that you make all the wrong decisions um so uh yeah yeah just uh get to play around in a bunch of different spaces but um if you want to um check out any of this work in post uh, or read any of it you can find um you can find my uh, online shop it's darknightnation.com slash shop um i know kind of weird seemingly unrelated but i used to do uh podcast or youtube uh and that was the moniker that i used and that was the domain that i paid for so now i'm too afraid to change it because then you know <laughs> Very cool. And uh, we met on Twitter spaces. So people can meet you on Twitter space. You want to share your, your Twitter handle too? Yeah. Yeah. You can find me at Twitter at P watch press, like pocket watch press. Um, uh, and uh, Instagram and Facebook is at pocket watch press as well. But um, I'm probably most active on Twitter. Um, you can probably find me rambling late night in Twitter spaces with George and our, our crew of pals out there uh, about things, both related and entirely unrelated to comics. Very true. And hey, if you're listening to this, that's insanely cool. It is a very big internet out there, and I'm very happy that you found my little slice of it. So please spread the word about this podcast. Give it a rating on whatever podcast service you're listening to, be it Apple, be it Spotify, be it something really cool I've never even heard of. Like I, I think there's one called Doozer, which is certainly a name choice. But hey, if you're listening to us on there, that's insanely cool of you. Uh, follow. I would be really, ex- I'd be, sorry? I'd be really excited if somebody found us on like Pornhub or something. Oh, I wouldn't, but that's neat. Yeah, like no, like I, 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 I don't want that personally. Like <laughs> sometimes I, sometimes I do work at schools, and like I don't, I don't enjoy hearing that. But yeah, no, that I hope someone finds you on Pornhub. That'd be delightful. I think that'd be great for your yeah. career. Yeah, <laughs> it, it could be. It certainly could be. 
Uh, follow the podcast at purplebird616 on Twitter. That is where I post most often. In fact, I don't even have an Instagram. I don't have a TikTok. No, that's too much for me, but God, do I love me some Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back in your ear holes next week. Don't ask what we're talking about, because I honestly have no idea. But we'll be back with you on Friday. Thank you so much for listening, and talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.